0: On the night of January 9, 1928, one long black limousine after another drove up to the main entrance of the palatial Krupp villa in Essen. The guests were, with one exception, middle-aged men, all were attired in formal evening dress. From their bearing and mannerism it was obvious that they were individuals of considerable importance. A servant greeted each of the guests at the door, took his hat and coat and led him through an enormous entrance hall with huge chandeliers, past a heavily carved oak staircase, Down a vast long corridor hung with portraits of generals and kaisers and fine tapestries, to a quiet study where his host, Gustav Krupp, awaited him. This was the first meeting of the Ruhrlade, the cabinet of the Ruhr, the most powerful secret organization of big business that existed during the Weimar period. They were all either directors or owners of the largest companies of the Rohr and they represented only the traditional and most powerful segment of heavy industry, steel and coal. The Rohrlade also acted as a secret pressure group exerting influence on the government in Berlin. If important matters were involved, the members, after conferring with each other, met directly with the authorities, even the chancellor and the president, to whom they readily had access. Half a year after their first meeting, in the summer of 1928, the Rurlade wanted to hold a lengthy discussion on important economic problems arising from the discontent of agricultural interests. But they could meet for only a few hours in the Ruhr without running the risk of attracting suspicion. Gustav Krupp suggested that the group meet at his castle in the Austrian Alps, Blunbach. The sparsely populated alpine region in which the castle was located was almost inaccessible and an ideal place for a secret meeting. The Krupps owned miles and miles of thick pine forests and snow-caped mountains further than the eye could see, even after the visitor reached the main gate of Blunbach. He still had a long journey to the castle. There was little danger here from government spies or snoopy reporters. The members conducted their business in complete tranquillity and found ample time to enjoy themselves. The four-storied ivy-covered castle was a baroque masterpiece both on the interior and exterior. There were tiger skins on the floors and antique portraits, and mounted chamois horns on the walls. These tycoons from the smoke-polluted industrial cities of the war found the mountain air most invigorating. What they decided up there in the hallways of the Austrian Olympus would have dire consequences for the rest of the world in the 20th century. But to understand how and why the bourgeoisie syndicates of heavy German industry decided against the demands of agricultural import tariffs put forward by their biggest class enemies, the aristocratic Prussian Junker Latifundias, and how it would become one of the most consequential decisions of the 20th century. Why? To really understand that, you just have to stay for the show, right? one way or another. Hello and welcome to the return of the repressed. Sorry about the delay. Um, I hope you nonetheless had a good weekend. Fuck, uh of course I had to get another cold like I really tried my hardest I was drinking so much hot tea and campo medicine and everything was fine and then yesterday I was gonna go have a haircut because of the new job right <laughs> and then just yes- <laughs> and then yesterday it was so windy and when I took a stroll with my boys so yeah now it's back again perfect timing for the <laughs> for the recording anyways uh, yeah, I crawled to the cross and got a Twitter account. Maybe somebody noticed. So far, so good. Uh, many of you gave me a nice warm welcome over there, which, make, which uh, makes it appear less of a cesspool <laughs> than I've heard it to be. So, so far, only nice people <laughs> have contacted me. Some strange, but, you know, that's fine. Um, also, uh, massive thanks, you know, as always, to those who have become Patreons. Uh, It has been about half a year since the show started and I think uh, any initial enthusiasm would have been, by now, buried under the pressure of everyday boring personal economic life had you lot not kept the flame alive. It's uh, obviously not all about the money and uh, everyone deserves a thank you for helping me merely by listening to how I bring clarity to all the noise inside my head. Thank you all. I've uh, recently been forced to go through all the introduction ceremonies at the local Japanese high school, bowing cap in hand again and again so that I can make a living while the podcast on the farm takes over. Uh, of course we should be thankful for an opportunity of labor exploitation. Uh, some don't even have that. And uh, I doubt I'm good at looking enough for OnlyFans. Nonetheless, if I do my best and the rest of you keep showing appreciation, I will not have to let the salary man take over the wheels of my interior. My cousin, who also listens to the show and loves to make fun of me, has predicted that within a year I'll be with my two meters in height. Selling out and wearing a giraffe suit on a Japanese TV game show (laughs) Let's make sure that does not happen, okay? (laughs) Uh, I've been reading some newspapers uh, now that I have to wear a tie Uh, It seemed fitting uh, even though it's a knitted one So let's do a small recap of that before we get into the show It correlates, after all, in more ways than uh, one would spontaneously assume. So, what's been going on lately? Well, fertilizers, my friends. Fertilizers. Really, Marcus? Again with the fucking fertilizers? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) They are skyrocketing. (laughs) I know for, you know, Japanese and Swedish farmers, last year, 2022, that is, synthetic uh, NPK, it is, yeah, it's a little bit different in Switzerland, but in English it's NPK, right? Additives uh, was the single most costly expenditure of their business. My statistics suggest it's a common tendency all over. And if you have something to say about it from your locality, then let me know in the comment section on Patreon or on Twitter. I mean, people like to talk about the fragility of our contemporary economic structure and how the division of labor is today as colonial or, you know, far reaching as the botanical ingredients of Bombay sapphire. Nowhere is that probably as true as when it comes to synthetic fertilizers, even more so than foodstuff. Uh, Sweden basically produces none of that. And I've seen estimates, I might have mentioned this before that in two weeks the supermarkets would start to go empty should imports of food production stop. For things like wheat, soy, maize, cabbage and leeks fertilizers can make up a fifth to a half of the cost of the commodity. In Sweden prices of food products overall have increased 20% and farmers as a whole have been forced to increase their pay from about 3.7 million crowns to 8 billions, in terms of fertilizer. The cutting off of Russian natural gas is of course a major factor since they need that hydrogen to fix the nitrogen in the air to make ammonia. It seems that the very basics of our contemporary economy is still based on a technological invention from the turn of the century. The initial insight of which, let me remind you once again, came from a seance at the ghost club. Not to mention that the anti-social relationship of its production is literally neolithic. In many ways we haven't come far from the Skull cult's phalluses at the Tepe. And if we assume that those pillars were once erected for similar reasons as the ancient legal decrees, be it the Ur-Nammu Code, the laws of Eshnunna, the cone of Urukagina, or the pillars of Ashoka. Is it not intriguing that many of them, if not all, rate as the highest offence, sometimes even mentioned before murder, the tampering of measurements in the pursuit of profits? Intriguing since the price hikes and the increased monopolization of a few western big chem actors in the last year, do not directly correlate with their own increased costs. As we will come to see in today's episode, war can be a great excuse for all sorts of things should you want to remain true to the oldest crimes in existence. Norwegian Yara dominates the Balticum nordic markets, uh, 8% in Finland, that's 70% in Norway, 60% in Sweden, etc. With the uh, help of market alchemy and despite decreased sales, Yara's profits increased with 300%, which is, uh, you know, not, a, not an exception. It is the same basically as German K plus S, Dutch OCI, Israeli ICL, Russian Eurochem and uh, the biggest Canadian US nutrient which remains at the top with some just crazy figures later I'll post some statistics on twitter and patreon that I think look interesting we can see how this is going to affect not only fertilizer thirsty crops but also other key up and downstream sectors like meat from all those domesticated subhuman slaves which need fodder as well as milk and egg etc. shout out to my Canadian acquaintance Monty brought my awareness to the big Canadian milk scam that is unfolding right now, undoubtedly di- <laughs> you know tied into Nutrien, who really stand out as a king of the big chem and PK court. It is estimated that during the coming 2023, global food insecurity will have more than doubled from 2020, which will probably express itself in riots and demonstrations, and who knows what? Again, as Robert Nesta Marley put it, a hungry mob is an angry mob. If I was to make an extended analysis of this phenomenon to tie us back into today's episode, I would point towards the fact that we know that since the 70s, as a somewhat arbitrary demarcation line for the dawn of neoliberalism, the hegemons have been increasingly cocky. In much of the developed world after the end of the left wave it has by now been far too long as i think lukacs put it since the proletariat reminded their masters of their discontent thus we have seen more intense austerity measures and shock doctrines chile in the 70s rwanda in the 80s russia in the 90s the list goes on Classically, though, austerity tends to affect pensions, which has a certain, let's say, audible anti-revolutionary kill switch built-in, since it evolves a lag of uh, one or two generations. Also, people of working age are not going to defend their parents' right to food as much as they will their own children. Uh, Another popular tool is inflation and I think we should never fancy ourselves having graduated from the elementary question of what is inflation. It is true under certain conditions and circumstances we do know what inflation is but I doubt that the parameters are as few as for example the density of alcohol and the atmospheric pressure which acts upon a thermometer to give us fairly consistent indications. Take water as another analogous example. We assume somewhat correctly that we know what water is, but look up for example the phenomenon of hair ice, also known as ice wool or frost beard, and you will find that scientists are still debating as to why this happens. So if something as seemingly well understood as water can still surprise us, we shouldn't think we know what inflation is. And not only because economics constantly borrows terms from physics to give itself a more scientific gloss. Lenin said that inflation is one of the biggest weapons we have against the bourgeoisie. What did he mean by that? Whatever he might have meant, I nonetheless think it is safe to say that the pensions and inflation is something that has less immediate effect than food prices which is always a felt consequence just a few hours away. So how dare they, we might ask. Not mind you in a moralist sense, but strategic. Is there something more going on here than the usual market opportunism that we might associate with austerity and shock doctrines of classical neoliberalism. Today's episode would lead us to a series of other possible motives motives of population control, eugenics, and hunger plans. If we return to the aforementioned gradually increasing decadence of the rulers, and note how it engages in a wave-like historical relationship with revolutions, i.e. at the crest of the decadence there is a revolution that breaks the wave. We should add to this a third set of waves, or maybe a third category category of behavior uh, of the same wave, namely the failure of said organic revolutions, which all too often brings about an ersatz of synthetic fascist revolutions. This is a demonstratable trend of the algebra of revolts, but rather than giving a general historical outline of it, I'll focus on this series' uh, subject matter example. In 1924, some months after what I have called the International Year of Fascist Exception, which saw the Canto Massacre, the March on Rome and the Bekele all different stages of the aforementioned ersatz. We also have the Dawes Plan, a financial plan named after Charles G. Dawes, a man who a year later during his campaigning as Vice President would be accused of being in bed with the KKK. The plan, more importantly, was in simple terms an American schema by primarily JP Morgan and other investment bankers of lending money to heavy German industry, the Ruhr cabinet of the intro, so that they could pay back the demands of the Versailles Treaty in commodities that they produced. Wikipedia's summary will let you know that it successfully resolved the issue of German World War I reparations. If you give me a few minutes I'll show it's not quite as simple as that. The populist forces of Germany were generally against the Dawes plan but found it hard to unite around a common nationalist opposition. Furthermore, since the National Association of German Industries, whose members were to be the main beneficiaries of the loans, was strongly in favor of the DOS plan, and since this industrial organization was one of the principal financial supporters of the Nationalist Party, its opinions could not be ignored. Thus it came to be during the mid-second half of the 1920s that liberal coal-steel made one good deal after the other. Then in 1928 we saw a huge drop in the prices of German agricultural consumption products. Farmers and landlords started to take out loans to stay afloat. In 29 came the demands of the second plan, the Young Plan, named after industrialist Owen D. Young, a member of the board of trustees of the Rockefeller Foundation. Young also had been one of the representatives involved in the previous Dawes plan of 1924. The Young Plan would force Germany to pay back in cash rather than commodities, which in turn forced banks to increase the interest of the farmers' and landlords' loans, which then went bankrupt en masse. The nationalist forces which had been split during and in the face of the Dawes Plan, now united around the negation of the Young Plan as a major signifier of the folk's discontent. This meant a common goal of not only the German National People's Party but also the Stahlhelm, the veteran association we mentioned in the previous episode, the Pan-German League and the up-and-coming more plebeian national socialists. Through the cooperation of a united front, Hitler was given the opportunity to make use of the great assets of the older more respected nationalist party and its media outlets. The biggest media mogul of the Weimar, Alfred Hugenberg, a royal from Hanover, and once a member of the National Liberal Party and later a Reich Minister for Food and Agriculture before Daré took over, brought Hitler in contact with large swaths of angry people who had never heard about him before nor his all too encompassing explanations of why things were going wrong. With this almost immediate consequence, it was almost as if some knew that they were pushing a certain part of the global economic machinery too hard when the Young Plan stated that the repayment would last until 1988. Hitler would have been 100 years by then, which is a Terrifying but also an amusing image to people like me who have worked quite a few weekends at care homes for you know those with dementia, etc. Why did you put my applesauce in the right corner of my oatmeal? But I Adolf, the plate is round, you can just turn it. Well, shut up, Jew <laughs> Anyways, this suspicion would be my notion of a controlled demolition in which Germany would be hit the hardest by the autumn Wall Street crash of 29. My theory is basically that if we return to the elementary circuit of MCM', prime, that is money for commodities for more money, then we see that the Roaring Twenties was a massive speculation on primarily production and consumption commodities for and from agriculture indicated by the fact that it was indeed German food prices that became the first symptom of that global crisis already in the spring of that fateful year. I'll keep making a distinction between production commodities and consumption commodities to prove my point, so don't think I'm just hiding a shitty theory under pleonastic fanciness. Production commodities are things that remain in capital circulation by making more commodities, while consumption commodities are the final product, which is taken out of circulation and used up by the buyer. Everything had worked fine when primarily US surpluses of ag production commodities, like fertilizers, other biocides and new machinery which were created by unused war material of the first world war, could be used in agricultural production of consumption commodities, like food. Furthermore, when industrial Germany was floated with American loans to produce more of those big ag chemicals, etc., every bet seemed a good bet in the economic matrix of the latter stages of what is called the first modern agricultural revolution, which had been gradually developing since the 16th century. However, at a certain point the stock market started to speculate as if that first modern agricultural revolution already had the economic potential of the second modern agricultural revolution. Which we know with historical insight would not come until after the second world war. Parts of which I have described in terms of the green revolution. I'll explain in a short while the difference between these two historical events and how some could have foreseen what was coming, since there had even already been a first world crisis of agricultural overproduction in 1890. By the end of the 1920s, when the capacity for agricultural production commodities, e.g. chemicals and new mechanical means of production, etc., had already been saturated among the aspiring mid-size and large farmers of the U.S. and the rest of the developed world, and many of its settler colonies. And when the city markets in that world in subsequent had already been filled to the brink with consumption commodities from those farming enterprises, MCM prime on the stock market no longer represented a real prime in the final instance, but rather what Marx called fictitious capital. If you are with me so far, I would like to make things even more interesting because though there is a dialectics between industrial agricultural absorption capacity, overproduction of real material goods and the overspeculation on the value of those goods, be it the production commodities of heavy industry or the consumption commodities of agriculture. In a way, this does not explain in toto Why in 1929, before the stock market crash, and before the Young Plan was to be signed, German farmers saw a great decrease in the price of the consumption commodities that they were selling. Surely, if they too had access to great, cheaper surpluses of aforementioned production commodities from the heavy industry, backed up and made to function in part by generous loans from Wall Street, and collaboration with American industrial cartels, then they should still be able to turn a profit. No? So the question naturally becomes before the crash and before the young Plan, why did the German food prices fall already in the spring of 1929? Usually that would happen in the autumn after an unexpected record crop. This chronology is seldomly emphasized even when well-respected scholars try to make sense of the interwar period due to the fact that the food prices and the crash happen in the same year they are usually lumped together as one catastrophic event a first assumption of mine was that the german aristocratic junker class had been too conservative and lagged behind in the development of the first agricultural revolution which was already in some ways becoming the second This does not seem to have been the case, but even if it was to a relative degree the case, that would have been a more gradual shift in having to force lower prices to compete with the new food imports. When I went on to newspapers.com, I saw that this gradual trend was also a phenomenon in the US and England, which it must be assumed was at the forefront of this agricultural, mechanical, soon-to-be motorized development. If we instead focus on German food imports, we will remember that the heavy industrial roll had made them possible by protecting the liberal open market. Not because they wanted to buy food cheaply, but because they needed to export and didn't want to see retaliating tariffs on their production commodities. Furthermore, this price drop of consumption commodities, i.e. foodstuff, and the subsequent borrowing by the class enemies of the gugulaada, the junker landlords, and their farmers seemed all too sudden, which made me ask another question: Was there any other big agricultural event of the previous year of nineteen twenty eight in close proximity that might explain the sudden drop? Funny you should ask, Marcus, I'm not an expert in uh, national economics, a mere simple farmer. But sure sounds like the great Soviet grain procurement crisis of 1928, which would end the NEP and begin the collectivization of the Union of Socialist Republics might have something to do with it. Basically, what happened was that in 2 years before the Great Wall Street crash in 1926 to 27, a post-revolutionary record harvest of 76.8 million tons resulted in a state procurement of 10.6 million. When 27 to 28 rolled around, there had been some drought. As far as I can tell, nothing devastatingly major, but nonetheless enough for agricultural communist central planners to foresee a less record-breaking harvest. Thus, instead of the previous 10.6 million tons, they estimated to procure some 7 million tons. Can I just say for the record, before I continue, again, I'm not a national economist, but a procurement of some 14% of the total output by the state is the same or much less than the income tax in most liberal democracies. However, state grain collection began in October 1927, following the new harvest of wheat and rye. A trend continued in November and December which ended up with planned total procurements for the 7 million tons being missed by a massive 2.1 million tons. The crisis in grain collections caused a split within the top leadership of the Communist Party. Comrade Bukharin blamed the weather, as one would expect, being a NEP proponent, insofar that he thought free trade would increase the prosperity of the farmers. Majority of party activists, however, rallied around Comrade Stalin, who felt the shortage was political in nature. My question is, dear listener, what if they were all right? What if the farmers got prosperous by selling all that grain to Germany in nineteen twenty seven to twenty-eight? The growth of the Krupp and the other industrial cartels of the Ruhr Cabinet, which involved secret rearmament, was in part made possible by having sold farming machinery and chemicals to large NEP landowners and latifundias in the East. Immediately after the Treaty of Rapallo in 1922 was signed, i.e. before the shenanigans with the Yankees began, when the German Republic and Soviet Russia both renounced all territorial and financial claims against each other and opened friendly diplomatic relations basically the opposite of the approach of the Allies, if you like. Walter Rattenau of IG, who you will remember as the World War One resource minister from our previous episodes, whom uh, by now was the foreign minister, urged Gustav Krupp, head of the Ruhr cabinet, to take over a large trading concession in Russia to prove that German business was prepared to collaborate in a practical way in furthering the aims of the treaty. Krupp had consented at once. In explaining his new Russian project to his firm's board of directors, Krupp stated that a German army officer had told him that Lenin had said, The steppe must be turned into a bread factory, and Krupp must help us. Shortly thereafter, Krupp agricultural machines were sent to plough up 65,000 acres between Rostov and Astrakhan. Of course, Krupp was part of uh, a larger project. And now with 2.1 million tons gone missing from the state procurement of 28, the big farmers of the east had, it would seem, at least to me, returned the favor by flooding the German market with cheap bread grain. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, wait Marcus. Let me get this straight. You're saying what I think you're saying. The Kulaks Modernised with crop steel et al. In part made possible by Wall Street loans. Began World War II. What? what's that? No, no he he's saying the he's saying the Kulak started World War II. Really? Yeah. Well that's your fault for drinking during the pregnancy. My fault. My fucking fault. Take a look at yourself love. You're an embarrassment. Vom Häuserkampf, beim Barbecue in den Ruinen der Deutschen Bank. Vogelnester in einer löchrigen Leuchtreklame. Wir wärmen uns auf an einer brennenden Deutschlandfahne. Und wenn einer auf der Parkbank schlägt, dann nur weiß ich, ein Mädchen an seinen Arm anlegt. Drei Stunden Arbeit am Tag, weil es mehr nicht braucht. Heute nachdenken denken wir uns Namen für Sterne aus danken dieser Bombe vor zehn Jahren und machen Liebe, bis die Sonne es sehen kann. Weißt du noch, als wir in die Tische ritzen in den Schuhen? Bitte, Herr, vergib ihn nicht, denn sie wissen, was sie tun. Unter den Pflastersteinen wartet der Sandstrand. Wenn nicht mit Rap, dann mit der
2: Pumpgun. Und wir singen im Atomschutzbunker. Ua, Bogen, wir erlegen einen Leckerbissen. es gibt kein Knast mehr, wir grillen auf den Gefängnisgittern, verbrannte McDonalds Zeugen von unseren Heldentaten, seit wir Nestle von den Feldern jagten, schmecken Äpfel so wie Äpfel und Tomaten nach Tomaten und wir kochen unser Essen in den Helmen der Soldaten, du willst einen rauchen, dann geh dir was pflücken im Garten, doch unser heutiges Leben lässt sich auch nüchtern ertragen. Komm, wir fahren in den moosbedeckten Hallen im Reichstag. Kein Bürostuhl Bettrennen Unsere Haustüren müssen keine Schlösser mehr haben. Geld wurde zu Konfetti und wir haben besser geschlafen. Ein Goldbarren ist für uns das Gleiche wie ein Ziegelstein. Der Kamin geht aus, ruf mal noch eine Bibel rein. Die Kids gruseln sich, denn ich erzähle vom Papst. Dieses Leben ist so schön. Er braucht dein Leben danach. Er braucht dein Leben danach. Er braucht ein Leben danach. Und wir singen im Atomschutzbunker. Hurra, diese Welt geht unter. Hurra, diese Welt geht unter. Hurra, diese Welt geht unter. Und wir singen im Atomschutzbunker. Grauchen, Ott spielen Tower. Dort wo früher der Potsdamer Platz war. Wenn ich aufwache, streich ich dir noch einmal durchs Haar. Schatz, ich geh zur Arbeit bin gleich wieder da, wir stehen auf, wann wir wollen Fahren weg, wenn wir wollen Sehen aus, wie wir wollen Haben Sex, wie wir wollen Und nicht wie die Kirche oder Pornos ist uns erzählen Baby, die Zeit mit dir war so wunderschön Ja, jetzt ist es wieder aus Aber unsere Kinder weinen nicht Denn wir ziehen sie alle miteinander auf Erinnerst du dich noch, als sie das große Feuer löschen wollten? Dieses Gefühl, als in den Flammen unsere Pässe schmolzen Sie dachten echt, ihre Scheiße hält ewig Ich zeig den kleinen Monopoly Doch sie verstehen's nicht. Ein 100-Euro-Schein? Was soll das sein? Wieso soll ich dir was wegnehmen,
0: wenn wir alles teilen?
2: Und wir singen im Atomschutzbunker. Hurra,
0: is now that what i'm talking about is not that which is as of now an illegal topic of discussion in ukraine namely the famine that took place some four years later i will discuss that in a future episode but as we for now learn more about the initially german liberal soon to be fascist kulak collaboration it will obviously serve as an immediate historical precursor Perhaps one even more useful than all the finger-pointing towards the initial stages of collectivization. But we will see. Also necessary if you were led to believe that all that communists mean by sabotage is that hard-working entrepreneurs are selling things on the free market. Again, not quite so simple. And even liberals and social democrats might lend an ear when we accuse actual fascist collaboration. Furthermore, returning to the years in question, I'm not a reductionist, and as much as I would like to settle the blame on the Kulaks alone, they were aided, as already mentioned, by quite a few other instrumental actors. Regarding the Americans among them, I said in the last episode that the post World War II Kilgore Committee concluded that the American electricity, chem, coal, and steel cartels in their joint operations with their middle european equivalents the Gemeinschaft of Farben, the Cabinet, and the AEG, etc was all a big accident when it came to the documented evidence of the rearmament. If we initially merely assume that the committee's uh, conclusions are false Uh, that it was not an accident, since Anglo-American heavy industry had become international enough to benefit from each combatant's procurement and destruction of war commodities, then the outcome of the Young Plan and the immediate unification of the German far-right, and the earliest signs of a very important economic Caesaristic ceasefire to come between German bourgeoisie heavy industry and the aristocratic Junker Latifundias, Was probably not an accident either. Kilgore by the way uh, might come up later in connection to the Rockefeller's restructuring of the natural sciences during the post-war new biology project Uh, that is a couple of episodes away and I haven't decided yet how important I consider him to be. However Kilgore was involved in the temporary federal centralization of science during the war Again, what role he played in the not-so-temporary privatization of that centralization, as well as Operation Paperclip, I have yet to find out. But uh, maybe you know something dear listener, please let me know then. I'm quite sure that in addition to the overlapping economic structuring of industrial agriculture and industrial warfare, the Americans, or rather the international bourgeoisie, also knew having experienced it themselves as they indeed became truly global players after their World War I profits, that for example in 1917-1918 to 1918, an astonishing 78% of BASF's sales, today the world's biggest chemical company and leader in GMO cropping, had been to the military alone. And the other firms that would become part of the Intræsse Gemeinschaft had levels of exposure which was nearly as bad. So to really see a return on their loans, to really make sure that the middle European market kept on developing, war was necessary for business. Here I might add that even many non-annoyed historians claims that uh, no one at the time believed in the 1988 limit of the Young Plan. In the standard Cambridge international a s to a level history book uh, the usa 1975 no sorry the usa 1917 to 1945 uh, there it is claimed that it was assumed that the plan would only last a decade which is a fucking interesting shoot from the hip estimation since 29 plus a decade is the invasion of poland But maybe I'm just seeing things that are not there again. In 1950 James Stuart Martin published a book called All Honorable Men, describing his experiences as chief of the economic warfare section of the Department of Justice, investigating the structure of Nazi industry. Martin asserts that American and British businessmen got themselves appointed to key positions in this post-war investigation, to divert, stifle and muffle the investigation of Nazi industrialists and to keep hidden their own involvement. What was to be hidden was already hinted at back in 1936 when the US ambassador in Germany William Dodd wrote FDR from Berlin on October 19, 1936, three years after Hitler came to power concerning American industrialists and their aid to the Nazis. Both. much as I believe in peace as our best policy, I cannot avoid the fears which Wilson emphasized more than once in conversation with me, August 15, 1915 and later. The breakdown of democracy in all Europe will be a disaster to the people. But what can you do? At the present moment, more than a hundred American cooperations have subsidiaries here or cooperative understandings. The DuPont have three allies in Germany that are aiding in the armament business. Their chief ally is the IG Farben company, as part of the government which gives 200,000 marks a year to one propaganda organization, operating on American opinion. Standard Oil company, New York company, sent two million dollars here in December 1933 And has made 500,000 a year helping Germans make ersatz gas for war purposes. But Standard Oil cannot take any of its earnings out of the country, except in goods. They do little of this, reporting their earnings at home, but do not explain the facts. The International Harvester Company, President, told me their business here rose 33% a year. Arms manufacturer, I believe. But they could take nothing out. Even our airplane people have secret arrangements with the crops. General Motor Company and Ford do enormous business, here through their subsidiaries and take no profits out. I mention these facts because they complicate things and add to war dangers." End of quote. It is a common trend among a particular, I guess generally libertarian breed of researchers such as Anthony Sutton and Carol Quigley, to overemphasize the importance of the Wall Street houses in particular, and finance and banking divorced from a gold standard in general. However, even according to their own schematics one can easily see that the means of exchange can never outrank the means of production as a primary contradiction in a structure of overdetermined economics. That does not mean that it was unnecessary for the PLA to bring a banknote uh, printing machine on the Long March. However, when laying out an overview of this European-American geopolitical relationship of production in question, though it might be true, as Sutton and Quigley says, that in the specific, three Wall Street houses held meetings more secret than those ever held by the Royal Masons or by any Rosicrucian order. These three banking syndicates being National City Company, Dylan Reed and Company, Harris Forbes and Company, uh, being in turn economically linked to the following cartels, IG, the German electric giant, Fejenige um, Stahlwerke, the United Steel Works, and IG Farben. One can easily see that though the banking represented a third of the American capital and the interest uh, profit reaped of German rearmament, 33% doesn't come close to the standards of monopolization on the higher stages of German corporate caesarism. Uh, The Föreninge Stahlwerke, probably the most influential of Ruhr cabinet industries, Controlled 30 to 50 percent of the commodities associated with its category of production, such as pig iron, pipes and tubes, heavy plates, explosives, coal tar, and bar steel. Not to mention the fact that many of these, you know, very much raw resources, uh, made many downstream companies, you know, directly dependent on them. Uh, IG Farben in turn controlled basically all of Germany's synthetic methanol production, all magnesium, 70% of all chemical nitrogen, 60% of explosives, almost half of the synthetic gasoline, and a fifth of all brown coal. To understand why means of production, and thus heavy industry, is almost always at the apex of control, rather than the means of exchange with its banks and other financial institutions. As uh, gold bugs, bitcoin believers and beginner conspiracy theorists would like to think, I guess one initially could look at the most pedagogic example addressed in part by Marx in Das Kapital, when he talks about the ones who own the machinery to run and extract gold from gold mines, being, you know, more with the times. Than the ones who hoard bullion. Furthermore, banks have an inherent vulnerability due to their class collaboration with the collective of petty bourgeoisie classes as consumers of their services. The same holds true for light industry and its consumption products. However, should you ever find yourself selling so many millions of tons of uh, lithium for so many millions of tons of steel, you would be operating on a level less concerned about the exchange rates of uh, stocks or even the value of currencies. I mean, it wasn't like the platinum mines of Zimbabwe were auctioned out for you know, a pittance when the federal bank started printing 100 trillion dollar notes. Or that they were shut down completely when the bank stopped printing dollars altogether. Now, I'm not sure if this barter deal in particular, uh, lithium for steel, is very prevalent. The point I'm trying to make is that the really large actors have a buffer of constant capital which the traders and service providers of variable capital, commonly understood as banks and their liquid assets, simply cannot afford. Banks come and go, but Krupp remains. USS is still America's biggest steel company, even though the proles of J.P. Morgan produce roughly the same amount of steel today as they did in 1902. Show me a bank which operates according to a similar constant standard. In contrast to the Nova Riche digital technocrats, who compete for the titles of being the world's richest, the families and historical blocks of constant capital are not as known, since they by definition do not have to operate on the so-called open market, and they prefer to keep it that way. For example, take a look at the top 10 owners of gold mines on a site like visualcapitalist.com and tell me if you recognize any of the names. Constant capital, in this parapolitical sense then, beyond being investment in means of production, i.e. land, mines, forests, machines, industry, etc. is uh, also what we like to call old money, though unlike hoards, made to make the new. Everybody could technically buy as much as they want of a particular currency, an asset or a stock. But even Elon Musk is famously having problems buying millions of tons of lithium, and buying a lithium mine, uh, even though his family owns mines of other kinds, seems to be an even bigger problem. Fictitious capital of Ponzi schemes are unlimited and thus ultimately worthless, whereas limited resources are material and worth starting wars over. This unique position of the heavy industrialists as a distinct historical block rather than smart individuals or great entrepreneurs also means that their relation to crises are different. It would seem that there is no petty bourgeoisie so-called risk capital involved. When the pyramid is seasonally flooded as the Nile continues to be filled beyond its brink, every once in a while for how many quarter moons have it been now, and their skyscraping peaks still breathes and thinks clearly as their heads are kept above water. All they have to do is wait out the catastrophe and later acquire and salvage that which was once overpriced, having now turned to pennies on the dollars, as their imps like to say. Contrary to notions about evil geniuses, schemers, the image of Shlomo in the triumph of the will, or a Nigerian in Congolese folklore, it is almost as if there is no agency involved. The system just resets itself in this way again and again. Though we should of course be careful to associate its continuity as being of the same absolute grade as the sun itself. In contrast then, Banks, who, as previously mentioned, depend on the individual capital of petty bourgeoisie actors as a collective, find it hard to do the same. And crises uh, are, if not a crisis, uh, I mean, they, main, they also remain well fed, at least not an opportunity. There are, of course, now banks considered too big to fail, which are allowed to suckle at the welfare other, which their human representatives sadomasochistically love to despise Um, furthermore where today's uh, hedge funds stand in all this relatively unburdened by that petty bourgeoisie class collaboration i guess remains to be seen obviously i'm generalizing but then again everyone is so if we nonetheless return to my previous insinuation that it seemed like someone knew what they were doing when they first accepted the Dawes plan and then the young plan these someone's being the open market liberals of heavy industry are we going to believe that they only knew every step of the way and how to play it you know increasing their monopolization during the crash i.e outmaneuvering the smallest players of the same industries and usurping them in good deals furthermore bringing down a notch the autonomy of their political class enemies the landlord aristocratic junkers of Prussia, and forcing them to intensify their industrialization of agriculture. But that they were somehow oblivious to the final fact, namely that the young plan, even before it was passed, it never got passed again, would unify the right-wing forces. Forces which called for the renewal of the same conditions that had made these industries immensely rich during World War I. In addition, we can see an increased industrialist interest also on the American side, from the first Dawes plan to the second Young plan. By which point in time, no one would deny that J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller had become two of the major architects of reparations organization. Heavy industry in, general banking out, as the loans and the ordinary financing stopped after the crash. Thus it would seem that what we are looking at, was the remaking of an initially federal program of organizing reparations into a private program of consolidation economics that would internationally interlink the two greatest industrialist forces of the world, as the only bloody solution to liberal overproduction drew ever closer. Jimmy Falun Gong of the Programme to Chill podcast has already made an excellent extended series on the question of who financed Hitler. So there's really no need for me to point towards this specificity any further. However, when names do appear, which can be tied to the future new biology and my own interpretation of the signifier of eco-fascism, I will, of course, have to point them out. For now, I would like to focus instead on a more agricultural historical reading to understand all the contradictions though hereto mentioned, but above all the contradiction of overproduction. And to do that we must put all the actors within the greater context over which no single actor can be given a supreme role. As we like to say, uh, that is we of material dialectical history, These actors might indeed make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. And if we want to find from where they did their borrowing of names, battle slogans and costumes in order to present this new scene in world history, in time-honored disguise and borrowed language, then we have to recognize, as I already alluded, that World War I and World War II were the final stages, the last two controlled demolitions of an overproduction associated with the latter interlude between the first and the second agricultural revolution. Now you might say, but Marcus, I thought the agricultural revolution took place during the Neolithic. Err, wrong. (laughs) So obnoxious. (laughs) You are the weak slink. Goodbye. (laughs) As we saw in our early communism and ocean series, we have documented archaeological hard evidence that cereal cultivation and sickle-based harvesting, goes back to at least during or even before the late glacial maximum. Thus to maintain that what was actually a rise of the grain states was somehow also an invention of quote-unquote true agriculture, the Oxcam model if you like, well then you would have to read revolutions as describing a back-and-forth gradual process covering tens of thousands of years, from the peak of the ice age to the early proto-pyramids, as well as the 4,000-year gap between domestication of grains to the first quote-unquote true agricultural societies, Uh, true here meaning organized around taxation and a monopoly of violence. What I'm trying to say is that the world revolution in this context ceases to have any meaning. Now, the first modern agricultural revolution was one of mechanization which began in the 16th century, which led to the second, that of motorization, beginning at the end of the 1940s. To the keen observer you might already see that in this way we not only explain why World War II had to follow World War I, and why the 29 crash had to repeat as a farce the tragedy of the crisis of 1890 but also why World War II was followed not by a third world war, but by the green revolution and the new biology. If it's still a bit blurry, uh, don't worry, I'm literally insane. You should not understand me immediately. Uh, The rest of the episode will be an explanation of this post-medieval historical progress and its minor sub-revolutions. We have touched upon that before. It will culminate in the era of the late Victorian Holocausts, But now we will show how a holocaust of lack also appeared to Americans and Europeans as the first world crisis of agricultural overproduction. This is going to take some time, so forgive me dear listener if I made you believe that we were going to jump straight into the hunger plan of tare and Bakke. But i think to not just get morbid with statistics and or you know spook the shit out of ourselves with more occult darkness surrounding the artaman you know the that new word we have for the aryan farmer i mean we will do that as well but to really understand what the reich ministers meant by reorganizing the european agricultural market to get a clearer picture of the infighting within the nsdap regarding how that should be carried out and to really understand that more known holocaust as in the Shoah we need some technical historical material backdrop of reapers Brabant plows and grain binders obviously Marcus obviously that's uh, that's how Schindler's list uh, opens up I remember it perfectly there was an image of a uh, threshing machine which in stop frame motion turned into the gate of house <laughs> and everybody went oh i see now yeah jokes aside in addition you know it wouldn't hurt to secure the stake i've rammed into the heart of the kulaks with some uh, more circumstantial evidence before our anti-stalinist pity necromancers them back to life and we put a ukrainian flag in our twitter handle now, should you have no beef with the kulaks, I'll tempt you with some other treats, why this might be a useful investigative uh, end You see, uh, even though we will venture deep into bourgeoisie history, you will recognize some of the names, not only from the conflicts of the end of the first half of the 20th century, but also the contemporary conflict in Ukraine, as well as the new buddies of Bill Gates, the farmer i have hinted at my hatred for the plough before and how it and its forerunner the ard which uh, made the templars and particularly king lionheart rich uh, get it rich ard <laughs> i don't know if that's, the <laughs> if that's the correct etymology of his name but i think so um, You know, you'll see how they are directly connected I'll go as far as to say the major cause of the previous historical pandemics, including the Black Death. The Black Death, which just so happens, is also the time of the original crime of the Krupp family, as they first started scheming to buy up farmland and property lost by those lost to the plague. We will not go that far back in this miniseries, But failing to understand how deep the contradictions of farming are rooted in stock crisis, overproduction and war, might force one to conclude, as did the farmers who listened to Ford, that at the heart of the Jewish conspiracy that he imagined and transferred, there was a real ancient fear of someone taking control of all food supplies. I'm sure that many of you are aware that in 1927 Ford was brought to court for the first time when Aaron Sapiro sued him and his newspaper, The there born Independent. Um, the court famously did not want to discuss the anti Semitic charges, but it is often forgotten that Sapiro wasn't just any political activist, but a leading figure in the American Farmers Union. Promoting a model of cooperative agriculture. By 1925, Sapiro's plan, which the New York Times described as, quote, one of the greatest agricultural movements of modern times, end of quote, had enlisted more than 800,000 farmers. Ford had by then already been posting about the Jewish farm conspiracy for half a decade. In an article entitled, quote, how the jewish question touches the farm end of quote the independent argued that quote the jew is not an agriculturalist end of quote he only cares about quote, land that produces gold from the mine and land that produces rents end of quote. in one issue the paper even offered a reward of one thousand dollars to anybody who could uncover a jewish farmer now here in 1925 was a jew who was successfully organizing ford's beloved farmers into a powerful force a phenomenon ford viewed as suspiciously similar to socialism for more than a year under the theme of quote, jewish exploitation of farmer organizations and of quote the paper took aim at the farm co-op movement in more than 20 articles it sought to portray sapiro as the leader of a quote conspiracy of jewish bankers end of quote forcing farmers into cooperatives and here's a longer quote i'm not sure entirely if this is a uh, paraphrasing because i tried to find the original documents but but for some reason this particular year is super hard to find it's not on newspaper.com and it's also not on uh, uh, well one of those really big archives of the dearborn independent So, you know, I had to take this from a secondary source Uh, and we can, you know, of course, speculate on why that is. Quote, he had turned millions away from the pockets of the men who tilled the soil and into the hands of the Jews and their followers. His strong arm tactics and squads of Bolshevists had infected farm children with the germs of communism, making them muddler's clay in his hands. His non-Jewish associates were nothing more than Gentile false fronts, human camouflage of the international ring of professional aliens. End of quote. <laughs> now, though Ford had charged alien communism, Sapiro <laughs> wasn't a socialist as far as I can tell, but co-op farms, whether they believe in liberal competition or not, is still a more human option than Ford indebted latifundias. Those of you who have been with me throughout the miniseries uh, of, you know, the bio warfare and peace already know that Ford will in the fifties come to play the major role together with Rockefeller, not only in the new biology project, uh, you know, the theoretical scientific project, but also the practical, the green revolution. Um, But in preparatory addition, he had already during the first world war. Been the first to begin the mass industrial production of motorized means of agricultural production. What he called the automobile plough later to become the tractor was at least three decades ahead of the second industrial agricultural revolution and it would come to dominate its market even more than the famous T Ford. Sapiro certainly knew that his cooperative grain market plan could pose a problem to Ford's vision in the making, and that's why he wanted to make the agricultural question rather than the Jewish question a central part of the lawsuit. The trial, however, was delayed again and again, and finally tampered with by Ford who settled the matter outside of the courthouse with an apology, which the mainstream press at the time heralded as some kind of victory for everybody involved. Um, when I instead went on newspapers.com to read some less mainstream papers from the you know this period in question, like uh, the Oklahoma cotton grower, <laughs> never thought I would read that paper, but yeah, it became clear that in the meantime of the stalling, which went on for years, Ford had achieved what he set out to do, namely to make farmers associate co-ops with anti-American international jewelry and communism for generations to come i said initially that this was an ancient fear that heinrich was mass producing through his nazi propaganda and i said that since you will recall that in genesis 41 this is at the very center of the nightmare of the autocrat who will banish the jews from egypt quote after two whole years pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the nile And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to the Pharaoh. End of quote. At the end of the chapter, uh, not sure if that's how you're meant to talk about the Bible, but uh, then I'm not a theologian, I'm a farming monk, so I can do whatever I want. (laughs) We also learn, as have been hinted at, that a catastrophe for one is an opportunity for another. Quote The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you do." So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. It's good biblical advice, I guess. Yeah. Say, Christ be the multitude
2: multitudes only one loaf of bread. Christ be the multitudes only one loaf. Christ feed the multitudes only one loaf. Christ be the multitude. Only one Christ feed the multitudes multitude, loaf of bread. Poor people there is something for the pressures of the system get up on your head. Poor people, there is something for you. Mankind care not for his sisters anymore. Still, there is something for you. Written in the book of life, we shall live forevermore. There will be something for Rest our works a manifest, and it a blossom on a bloom. Nature always runs its course, the tide is rising with the moon. It only takes us spot to to the fume, what is hidden in the dark shall be revealed so very soon. Tell Pharaoh free the prisoners from the dungeons and the doom. Tell the youths for nothing, dread and bubble and put them in the platoon. The trials and the perils deeper than the blue lagoon. Demo want for no demonstration, no sister alone. Christ fed the multitude, they don't lay one loaf of bread. Poor people, there is something for you. Don't let the pressures of the system get upon your head. Poor people, there is something for you mankind care not for his sisters anymore still there is something for you each and every time you see we a forward a door there will be something for Gave Moses ten commandments upon two to bless of stone. Let Israel out of Egypt and then promised them a home. Samson slew the Philistines with a donkey chop on. And David slew Goliath with a two to a crown. Blessed be the man where walking, nothing at the war zone. Blessed be the man where hearing nothing at peon ground. Blessed be the herbs that keep with iron pee and a stone. Fire for your man where sit down in a Babylon town. Chill a su man go, a dance and left the pick. Need them alone. cannot take care of yourself? They get the young ready in a room. Population under pressure, still they have more money clown. And all the wasted love that has been lost has now been found. Christ fed the multitude with only one loaf of bread. Poor people, there is something for you. Don't let the pressures of the system get upon your red. Poor people, there is something for you. Mankind care not for resistance anymore. Still there things
0: time to get into it. In the Neolithic and at the beginning of the age of metals, deforestation of a portion of the temperate forests of the Mediterranean region and Europe, because of too frequent use of slash-and-burn techniques, had reduced the cultivated ecosystems of these areas to a state of extreme degradation. The agrarian systems based on fallowing and cultivation with the yard in antiquity inherited these degraded ecosystems composed of a mosaic of fields some cultivated some fallow of grazed meadows and heaths Uh, that's shrubland and of residual forests the total biomass of which certainly did not exceed 10 to 20 percent of the original biomass however lacking strong tools farmers using the art for cultivation left aside vast forested expanses, located in areas that were too cold or on soils that were too heavy, too wet or not fertile enough, as well as marshes and other lands subject to inundation, and inundation that means occasionally being covered in water. In the Middle Ages with cultivation using the plough, these quasi-virgin ecosystems were each cleared in turn and new cultivated ecosystems developed in the northern half of Europe. With their hay meadows, livestock and increased harvests, these new ecosystems were wealthier in the capitalist sense than those of antiquity. In the same time period, the cultivated ecosystems of the southern regions were enriched thanks to arboriculture, terracing of slopes and irrigation. But despite these advances in cultivated biomass, It remains the case that with the large clearings of the Middle Ages, the total biomass of Western Europe had once again diminished. From early antiquity to the beginning of modern times, all the advances in agricultural production and the increase in European population were characterized by a comprehensive drop in the total biomass. From early antiquity to the beginning of modern times, all the advances in agricultural production and the increase in European population were characterized by a comprehensive drop in the total biomass. During this whole period the biomass temporarily increased only during periods of crisis and population collapse. With the first modern agricultural revolution on the other hand, the population and biomass together increased for the first time in the agrarian history of Western Europe. Enriched by new crops and larger harvests, the biomass of the cultivated ecosystem doubled at the very least. Certainly, the biomass was much smaller than that of the original forest, but the annual production of plant biomass in the new ecosystems was nevertheless high. Moreover, it was entirely useful. A large part fodder and by-products was consumed by livestock and recycled through manuring and, as a result, the other part, directly consumed by people, was greatly increased. The enlarged possibilities for nutrient exports via the harvests were ultimately accounted for by a higher rate of occupying the soil and by a greater recycling of of organic matter, which effectively counterbalanced the losses of minerals through drainage and denitrification. In most of the industrializing temperate countries, the gains in production obtained through the first agricultural revolution were more rapid than population growth. These gains were characterized first of all by the disappearance of shortages and famines, then by a lasting improvement in diet. Though it was a child of the old agricultural system, dependent on the ag-revolution of the antiquities of the yard and the medieval of the plough, it did differ in some essential respects. If scholars who are not agricultural experts mention it they tend to focus on the abandonment of the old mode of fallowing. Fallowing? What's that you might say? Like the dictionary of Google Docs? Do you mean following? No, (laughs) I mean the old farming technique of letting the soil rest a year or two in between cropping. That technique in a way, much like the theory of humors, though useful at times, was based on an erroneous notion. Soil doesn't rest, though it is true that pathogens associated with a certain crop might disappear when one does not plant its favorite food. Depleted nutrients, minerals, etc. does not magically reappear just because you don't make use of the soil. In fact, if only let to rest, The first vegetation to return to an abandoned field tend to not be rigorous in terms of biomass. They are more, you know, survivor plants, commonly known as weeds, which again, in addition, is also an erroneous way of thinking. The Egyptians already knew about this and would plant what is known as cover crops or green mulch in between crops to return the lost biomass to the soil, such as nitrogen-fixing clover. Overcoming following by thinking in terms of fodder for the soil itself was in particular, then, not the most novel aspect of the first agricultural revolution. What was new was that when it spread in places such as the Netherlands, England, France, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, Bohemia, Northern Italy and Northern Spain, its development was influenced by the important reforms in the ancien regime and it was intimately linked to the growth of industry, commerce and cities. In contrast in places of southern Europe Alentejo of southern Portugal, Andalusia which is you know basically the entire coastal south of Spain, Meso Giorno again the entire south of Italy as well as the eastern lands of Hungary, Slovakia and many areas of Russia and Wherever archaic social conditions survived, the use of fallowing lasted until the beginning of the 20th century, and industrial revolution did not take place. In short, as a baseline for understanding this historical contradiction, a pronounced contrast started to appear between a center of industrial and agriculturally developed Europe, and an underdeveloped southern and eastern periphery. Beyond the simple demarcation of fallowing or green mulch cropping, we can see a complex matrix of ecological, economic, social, political and juridical conditions. And it was not only because of technological obstacles that this agricultural revolution took so long to develop. As I said, the Egyptians already knew of nitrogen fixing and so too did some social formations of the medieval period. We could start with uh, some of the juridical conditions. I let you know that the Chinese word for France is law country, in part because of its phonetic FAGUO, but also, so I have been told, because the bourgeoisie revolution was above all a juridical revolution when it began in France. The juridical example I'm thinking of in particular will reveal more about the historical development of Europe, than what is attempted with the brain exercise or thought experiment of the tragedy of the commons. From the end of the Middle Ages, a large movement was formed in several regions of Europe against common grazing rights in all its forms. This was famously dealt with by Engels in the chapter on Primitive Accumulation of Capital in the book The Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State. If uh, you have read it, it goes without saying that you are most likely a very good person. You sat down to read mid-nineteenth century literature. Which, I mean, that was a good chunk of hours. You didn't spend doom scrolling or watching pornography. Not to speak of uh, you know, the time you then got to spend philosophizing about its implications on your thinking. Which limited the time wondering about what to buy next even if they were really cool things like vinyls or house plants. <laughs> However in this seminal work Friedrich mainly focuses if I remember correctly on husbandry and the very interesting development of enclosure laws for sheep and the wool industry as well as land speculation and the class war between the theocrats, the emerging bourgeoisie and the old aristocrats. Um, this will, of course, be somewhat related to what I'm going to bring your attention to uh, namely, that by the end of the Middle Ages, in most areas of Europe, the ancient rights of use and joint possession of common lands constituted obstacles to the development of the first agricultural revolution. The first attacks against these rights generally began in this time period and were pursued over the following centuries. Depending on the dates and the various forms in each country, these attacks generally led to the abolition of the right to common grazing lands and other collective obligations, and to the institution of the right to enclose and cultivate freely, or have cultivated, one's own lands, that is, the introduction of a true right of private property in agricultural lands. In addition, A large portion of the jointly possessed forests and pastures were also divided. All things considered, this entire movement took the form of a large increase in private property in land. But private property, unlike private use, also means that you are within your rights to abuse something. It also meant that a built-in democratic aspect to the medieval mood of production, namely that in the years of fallow, when cattle was allowed to graze freely on that land, and manure fertilizers were distributed according to the whims of a cow, who did not distinguish with regards to creed or estate, was lost. But if the double movement of decline in collective obligations, and growth in the development of private property and right of use or abuse, was a necessary condition for the development of the new agriculture. It was far from being a sufficient condition for that development. Let me try to explain beyond the judicial and the technological. The first agricultural revolution was a vast gradual development that led to a doubling of agricultural production and productivity. Even if the improvement in the peasant diet absorbed a part of these gains, it remains the case that around half of the total agricultural production could henceforth constitute a marketable surplus. The agricultural revolution could develop fully only on condition that this surplus actually met an adequate solvent demand coming from a non-agricultural population as large as the agricultural population itself. Because, well, it doubled, right, the productivity. For the first time in the history of the West, a society in which workers, artisans, merchants, employees and persons of independent means made up more than half of the population became not only possible but necessary in order to absorb the surplus of production coming from the new agriculture. We see here a dialectics. People are pushed off their lands, both juridically, but also because new technology have been introduced that make them superfluous. Or the economic value of raising, for example, sheep for wool is suddenly worth more than their labor, etc. And as they have no choice but to move to the cities, they become the new proletarians of the city and its industry, and as such, simultaneously, the new customer base for agricultural produce talk about a catch-22 situation right? I mean it's like you have to leave this land so that what we grow on this land can be sold. And that is why in the 16th and 17th centuries the agricultural revolution developed first around textile centers in Flanders and England. In the 18th century it continued to expand in England as the first industrial revolution reached the mining and iron manufacturing regions. It began to spread in France, Germany and the Scandinavian countries. Finally, in the 19th century, it developed completely in all the industrialized regions of Northwest Europe. The first agricultural revolution and the first industrial revolution advanced together. They proceeded at the same pace because they existed hand in glove with one another. If we now feel that we have a somewhat better understanding not only of the initial stages of the first modern agricultural revolution but also where it came from and where its predecessor came from, as well as its uneven development across Europe's geography and class topology, let's try to deepen this knowledge and let's discuss the implications of the sub-revolution or the latter stages of the first agricultural revolution namely that of mechanization of animal-drawn cultivation and the transportation revolution, which together will result in the first world crisis of agricultural overproduction. 31st of July 1914 Jean Jaurès a heterodox marxist and one of the first social democrats a man who rejected the concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat and tried to conciliate idealism and materialism individualism and collectivism democracy and class struggle patriotism and internationalism was assassinated by French nationalist Raoul Villain <laughs> yes his name was really Villain, for opposing the First World War. Villan later fled to Ibiza, where he was killed by anarchists during the Spanish Civil War. Some two decades earlier, in 1897, in a speech to the Chamber of Deputies, Jean Jaurès said the following, commenting on the crisis of agriculture. Quote, no longer do natural forces traverse his field, but economic forces social forces, human forces. From harvest to harvest his labor remains the same, the price of his wheat drops almost constantly. For a half century in the great plains of India, Russia, the American West, other men work at lower cost, and all of this production, quickly brought closer by the speed of great ships, weighs constantly on him. Thus there are distant people and continents appearing suddenly now from the mist as hard and massive realities. And it is perhaps the quantity of wheat sown by a farmer in the American West, the wage distributed to the poor day workers in India, and even the tariff, tax and money laws promulgated in every part of the world, upon which the price of his wheat, the price of his labor, his liberty perhaps, and his prosperity, Will depend. End of quote. The new agriculture was, by the beginning of the 19th century, despite its success as a political-economic system and the success of the bourgeoisie in general, limited by the nature of the equipment and means of transport inherited from the Middle Ages. Certainly, the equipment associated with cultivation, based on the plow, you know, scythe and. Carts and hayforks, these are some of my favorite things, <laughs> was sufficient to allow, up to a certain point, the development of new agrarian systems. Using this old and, when all is said and done, not very capital efficient equipment, the agricultural calendar was quickly saturated, which in turn limited the maximum surface area cultivable by each worker and therefore the labor productivity of the new system. Carts, wagons, fodder, and manure made it possible to take complete advantage of the local possibilities for renewing the fertility of the new cultivated ecosystems. But the weakness and high cost of land-based transportation by carts and wagons and maritime transportation by sailboats severely restricted the use of amendments and fertilizers from distant places. And remember, we are not talking about synthetic fertilizers at this time yet. At this point in the development of agriculture in temperate countries amendments and fertilizers became the most direct means to bring the fertility of cultivated lands to a still higher level. Finally, this weakness in means of transportation also greatly limited the possibilities of long-distance sales of the growing marketable surpluses resulting from the agricultural revolution. Up to the end of the 18th century Industry primarily provided consumer goods, however, at that time it also began to produce new machines, and, with the use of the steam engine, industrial mechanization took on great importance. In the 19th century, a rapidly growing iron and steel industry produced all sorts of new machines, for industry first, but also for agriculture and transportation. Thus, from the first half of the 19th century, industry began producing a whole range of new equipment for animal traction, such as the metallic plows perfected by John Deere, which you remember from the Ukraine episode is becoming the ag flagship corporation of Bill Gates. Brabant plows and harrows, sowers, reapers, harvesters, threshing machines, as well as all sorts of small farm equipment such as winnowing machines, sorters, chaff cutters, root cutters, grinders, churns, creamers, threshing machines with a crank etc. The use of these machines which were more effective than the older ones saved precious time in particular during the heaviest periods of work in the agricultural calendar. Gradually they formed a new comprehensive system of equipment that made it possible to double the surface area per worker and the productivity of labor in systems that exclude the following. In the second half of the 19th century and at the beginning of the 20th, this equipment was made in large quantities and widely distributed, in the United States first, then in other colonies of European origin in the temperate regions Canada, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, etc., and in Europe itself. This is the time when we see the rise of the gigantic fruit cartels, such as Dole, Standard Fruit Company, United Fruit Company, Chiquita, and Del Monte. But avocado toast is still a Gen Z problem, right? (laughs) Many of the sugar oligarchs, Hawaii's big fives, such as Chamberlain Plantation and Alexander and Baldwin Inc., which remains today the biggest landowner in Hawaii. Their Australian South Pacific counterparts, such as the Colonial Sugar Refining Company in Fiji, the palm oil monarchs of Malaysia and Southeast Asia, such as uh, the first British Singaporean trader, the Scotsman Alexander Guthrie. The beginning of the high bourgeoisie of Australia and New Zealand, Bennett and Fisher, Goldsboro, Mort and Company, Elder, Sterling and Smith. Walter Reed, Williams and Kettle, Dennis, Murray Roberts and Company, Dalgety PLC, today the world's biggest pig and cattle semen grifter, as well as other really shady biotech breeding solutions of their parent company Genus PLC, which today control cattle breeding in over 60 countries on every continent and in my opinion way more interesting rabbit hole than other high modernity conspiracies like chemtrails. We also see the rise of many of the big Texas ranchers and the Minnesotan Northrop King, which is one of the first seed companies, hit hard by the 1890 crash but would later recover as pioneers in the ethnobotanical colonial project of hybrid corn, a judicial forerunner to GMO and biopiracy revolution. I'll obviously touch upon corn hybrids at length later, but I've always thought about it as the cultural equivalent of an American overlord coming to, let's say, France and telling an entire populace, now you all have to drink Bud Chardonnay light. (laughs) Or something, I don't know. But uh, speaking of wine, our period in question also saw the rise of the big wineries, such as Spain's largest winery, the Bodegas Torres. This is very much related to the great French wine blight of the mid 19th century when the Filocera grape louse forced some French farmers to relocate to Rioja. I have heard talk about this being an early bio-warfare op but I can't speak about that any further right now. Though I am also highly suspicious of the recent banana pandemic the rt4 banana, banana geddon which the buyer lobby at al are saying appeared out of nowhere even though it has clearly existed in panama for 30 years and my suspicion is that it is a genetically modified version of the older banana pandemic disease of the 50s my suspicion is uh, as of now not based on much more than gates and melinda being you know The major players in pushing for a gmo vaccine for this new banana outbreak and uh, answering them independent scientists such as garcia bastidas are saying that instead of a single microsoft banana we should introduce more diversity into the banana crop so that it is more resilient to outbreaks of disease like tr4 He points out uh, there are hundreds of bananas with the potential of cultivation around the world. Why not use them? Already in countries uh, like China, India, Indonesia and the Philippines, people eat tens of different varieties of bananas, all of which offer different tastes, smells and sizes. But let's return to our historical event so that we can understand why the biotech ambassadors have a different vision. By the end of the 19th century industry in the developed countries was mass producing more effective new agricultural machines as well as new means of transportation that were able to supply fertilizers and and amendments to agriculture and ship large quantities of heavy and bulky commodities cheaply. Gradually conquered by transcontinental railroads and linked to Europe by transoceanic steamships The large white settler colonies in the temperate regions of the Americas, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa, began agricultural production. Having large amounts of space for very few people, these agricultural colonies rapidly adopted the new mechanical equipment, and their low-priced surpluses then began to invade the one great solvent market of the time, the European market where they squeezed out the marketable surpluses, resulting from the First Agricultural Revolution. The excess supply and the fall in prices that resulted, particularly for products that are easy to preserve, such as cereals, wool, oils and fats, plunged entire sectors of European agriculture into crisis. Despite the modernity of its agriculture, the United Kingdom, which has observed the principle of free trade, experienced a significant decline in its cereal and wool production and a new rural exodus. It then sank into long-term food dependence which has lasted until today. However, small countries such as Denmark and the Netherlands, having a large and experienced peasantry, took advantage of both the low prices of cereals and of the relatively good performance of prices for rapidly perishable products, by specializing in animal products or in the production of vegetables and flowers. Under the shelter of both selective and limited import protections, some of which were Bonapartist in outline, countries such as France and Germany succeeded to a certain extent in escaping the crisis, completing the first agricultural revolution and adopting the mechanization of animal-drawn cultivation. Now, please remember that this important protection, which saved Germany in 1890, later became the topic of discussion and subsequent destruction by the mighty Ruhr cabinet. And with that, having then come full circle in a way, we could add that at the end of the 19th century, for the first time, industry produced powerful enough means of transportation to open up the old and the new world to competition with each other. Now, one of my major concluding questions is thus the following, and this goes out primarily to the technognostic assumption of our unconscious, which obscures the good with words like productivity and efficiency. How can it be that the latter free market stages of the first agricultural revolution at the same time created history's greatest famines and holocausts while at the same time being a crisis of overproduction. Beyond the spontaneous assumptions enforced by the biotech propaganda that famine should somehow be directly linked to a shortage, we can see that at the beginning of the modernity that still defines our daily life, it wasn't so much a problem of a lack of technology as they will have us constantly believe but rather a distributary mechanism inherent to the system itself. Only by realizing this can we elevate our gaze to a point of greater proximity to the totality, where it will be clear that with every agricultural revolution in history, with every introduction of a new technology, it imposes itself in combination with intermediate periods of great loss in population, due to famines and ecological disasters. Any positivist statistics associated with this or that improvement in productivity must, to be fair, on mankind as a whole, include these abandoned fields, these lost workers and ruined surpluses as negations, as grand generational, sometimes century-long periods of fallowing, when nothing gets done in terms of either fruits or labor. Vast depleted wasteland, when no one reaps what cannot be sown. This fact, the absolute inhumanity of the MCM prime circuit, was already apparent in 1890. Yet by the beginning of the 20th century, the scene was set and the actors were in place for a new agricultural revolution to take off second agricultural revolution of modern times. But, and this is a big but, in its way stood a historical social obstacle. In that same time frame, during the first decades of the 20th century, there was a political radicalization of workers and peasant movements, as well as of the most retrograde landowning and employers oligarchies. This confrontation led to either socialist revolutions which did away with the landowners and oligarchs or the establishment of fascist states by those retrogrades like those in Italy, Hungary, Germany, Portugal and Spain. This tendency, that of the ecological roots of fascism, is worthy of mentioning, namely that wherever undemocratic distribution of land prevails, there too did fascism grow the fastest and most successful in Europe. This would also be a fundamental part of the land reforms carried out by the US in the occupied countries after the war such as Japan, Germany, Italy, Hungary and Romania etc. Obviously we could argue about how democratic they really are, but I think it's safe to say that the reason things have not gone worse than they have is the avoidance of latifundias the biggest initial class collaborators of fascism. Significantly, dictatorial tendencies of this type have continued to appear in the latifundist countries of Latin America. While in countries characterized by medium-sized peasant farms or farms employing wage laborers, totalitarian regimes, even if imposed from the outside, have never established themselves. Let's see what will eventually happen with the Chernozem soil north of the Black Sea. One of the few if not the only of the countries to remember this lesson is China and its agricultural allotment structure which basically through collective ownership of land on the commune level allows every Chinese citizen a plot of land to return to once they fail as life entrepreneurs in the city. In my opinion an essential mechanism Of the dictatorship of the proletariat as a transitory stage, but at the same time not inherently revolutionary, nor new since already during the northern and southern dynasties period, until the Tang basically the latter two-thirds of the first millennium, the Jun Tian Shi Du, the equal fields system, was in practice until the rise of the landlords, a long period of time when most farmland was owned by the government. And redistributed to individual village families. And even if you are perhaps not quite ready to think socio economically when you hear phrases like the dictatorship of the proletariat, dear listener, then I would say that it is a far more reasonable approach to citizenship as such than social security allowance, universal basic income, welfare checks, food stamps, or whatever other liberal, fascist, social democratic, or religious panacea solution one can think of that might alchemically sublimate the social contract of the nation-state while denying the dignity of the theory value of labor. Nobody wants just a handout not even people with CP who eat through tubes. A hoe attached to the electric wheelchair is only demeaning if you already consider yourself too good and urban for farming. Everybody wants to help to make the transition from each according to their labor to from each according to their need. Bill Gates of course understands nothing of this because he is simply a stupid fucking computer geek who needs to be stripped of all his authority when it comes to organizational questions regarding the future of robotized and automatized agriculture, what we could call the third agricultural revolution, but we will get to him again in due time. It's now time to end the episode by telling you where we are going from here. Maybe it's self-explanatory by now. Namely that since very little had been structurally done to avoid the catastrophes of the late Victorian era, the world had to go through first an aristocratic nationalist reaction to this global agricultural phenomenon of supply and demand, and then another reaction by the fascist collaboration of bourgeoisie heavy industry and aristocratic latifundias. And that is why, in the next episode, we will finally take a look at the last event before the second agricultural revolution and the new biology of Rockefeller. Namely, and I know I'm repeating the end of the last episode, but that's just the way it is. Namely, the hunger plan of the agricultural Reich ministers Backe and Daria. Though seldom emphasized, hunger killed far more people than Cyclone B and the totality of that holocaust reaped far more people than the classically cited six millions. Furthermore, the victims and the enemies of the logic of the new biotechnological world order, those who didn't even get a number in the concentration camps to which they were sent, shared a common signifying denominator which was not simply one of religion. We will also dive into the scientific aspect and the leading chemists of the Kaiser Wilhelm Gesellschafts, Operation Cabbage, that sought through the Department of Arbeitsphysiologie and its leader Heinrich Kraut to find a threshold between rations of calories and work performance, the results of which secured Herr Kraut a long and successful career after the war. You see, I'm quite sure that The demand of such research was high among those who wanted to optimize the emerging sweatshop colonies and their special economic zones. We will also study the plant breeding brigade, the Kommando Flanzensucht at auschwitz Subcamp Reiko, and the work of SS-Oberstumbanführer Joachim Zisar, which with stolen genetic research from the Soviet Union, eventually would give the California Institute of Technology its groundwork for the DNA doctrine of the fifties, in turn the initial stages of our beloved contemporary GMO ideology. There will also be some more brown-green occultism when we find out about the naturalist and anthroposophic herbal supplement and plant medicine laboratories of Dachau, where in the biodynamic of Waffen-SS Koitergaden one of the few really successful businesses of Himmler took place. Shout out to Boyna Gaucho on Twitter for pointing me in this direction. I thought I was done with Jung and Steiner for a while. Finally, I promise I have not forgotten about the Swedish book about the Aryan Atlantis from the 1600s. So hopefully it will tell us something we need to know about the envisioned Uheimat of the Zeiborg Artamans that would serve the data-collecting biotech-latifundism of the Third Robotized Agricultural Revolution.
1: I sat within the barley green I sat me with my true love My sad heart drove the two between The old love and the new love The old for her, the new that made me think all island dearly While soft the wind blow down the glade And shook the golden barley was hard the woeful words to frame to break the ties that bound us and harder still to bear the shame of foreign chains around us and so I said the mountain glen I'll meet at morning early. And I'll join the bold, united men While soft winds shook the barley Twas said I kissed away her tears My fond arm round her flinging When a foreman's shuffler stung our ears From out the wild woods ringing a bullet pierced my true love's side In life's young spring so early And on my breast in blood she died While soft winds shook the barley But blood for blood without remorse I've tumbled to her tallow. I've lain my true love's clay-like corpse, where I'll fall soon must follow. Around her grave I've wandered drear in night and morning early. WITH BREAKING HEART WHEN NEAR I HEAR THE WIND THAT SHAKES THE BAR